Welcome to Reflections on Buddhism on 90.7 FM KSQD Santa Cruz. Reflections on Buddhism is a monthly radio show with Buddhist teacher Tenzin Choki that bridges the world of Buddhist thought and the latest research into positive psychology. Each month, we'll select a topic where we can weave together the wisdom of Buddhism with the science of mind, and then apply these concepts to everyday life in a practical way. In this episode, Tanzan interviews Sarah Shirer, the founder and executive director of Compassion It, a nonprofit organization and global social movement whose mission is to inspire daily compassionate actions and attitudes. Sarah's new book, A Case for Compassion, What Happens When We Prioritize People and the Planet, is available now. A facilitator of the Compassion Cultivation Training course developed at Stanford University, Sarah leads trainings for audiences of all walks of life, from corporate executives to incarcerated individuals. She led Compassion Trainings in Africa, sponsored by the Botswana Ministries of Health and Education, and spent a week at a Rwandan refugee camp, helping to unleash compassion within its healthcare system. Sarah is contributing author to the book, The Neuroscience of Learning and Development, Enhancing Creativity, Compassion, Critical Thinking, and Peace in Education, and writes for Deepak Chopra's Center for Wellbeing website. Sarah cares deeply about systems level compassion and gives talks and leads experiential workshops on self-compassion, burnout prevention, mindfulness, and compassion. She also created the one-of-a-kind reversible Compassion It wristband that promotes compassionate actions on six continents, more than 50 countries, and all 50 U.S. states. Find out more about Sarah's work at the Compassion It website at CompassionIt.com. Thank you so much for joining me. It's going to be such a fun conversation, Sarah. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Tenzin. Yeah, great. So I loved your book so much, as we were just talking about before we hit the record button. You know, and I love the story that you shared in the beginning about, you know, the the kind of ideas behind the foundation of your nonprofit, which is called Compassion It, kind of like Google It and your whole idea to make compassion a verb. And I would just love to hear like a little bit about your personal story. And I think our listeners would love to hear about, you know, your story and your personal relationship with compassion. Thank you, Tenzin. You know, I was brought up like a lot of people brought up, told to be compassionate to others. And I, my family went to church every Sunday. I'm from a small town in the Midwest. So I've, heard the word compassion a lot, but I didn't really and truly understand what it was until many years later when I started learning a lot about compassion about 11 years ago. Um, And what prompted me to get into this compassion work, it was born out of my own suffering. Uh, In 2008, I was going through a really terrible divorce and my daughter was only a year and a half old. And I was looking for a job and couldn't find one because it was the financial crisis during that time. And I was watching a lot of daytime television while my daughter napped. And I saw an Ellen episode that changed my life. She was interviewing Wayne Dyer, 
and he was talking about compassion and he said it's the most important lesson to teach our kids if we could teach wow. our children compassion we would solve the problems of the world and i had never really thought about how powerful compassion was until he said that statement and i couldn't get it out of my mind and that evening the word compassionate appeared as two words compassion it and i saw it as a bumper sticker and thought well that's clever uh and i started just living that i had started compassioning it in my life trying on that phrase and i realized that it was so helpful in day-to-day -day life when i finally got a job it was helpful in dealing with challenging customers or a grumpy boss or even my ex-husband i found that whenever i used compassion things just went a lot more smoothly and practicing compassion for myself too was life-changing so i realized this powerful two-word phrase was was really something uh, that changed my life and i thought it could change others so i wanted to get the message out so it started as bumper stickers and t-shirts and then turned into this reversible wristband that you flip when you compassion it and that became a global movement i write all about it in the book but so that's kind of that's how it all got started and then in the meantime i found out about stanford's center for compassion altruism research and education and they were looking for people to teach the course that they developed compassion cultivation training and i got trained to teach that back in 2012. so then i became a compassion teacher and that's really what i am now yeah so your whole life really changed and now this has become such a huge focus for your life your own nonprofit teaching about compassion and all of these different uh venues all of, you know around the world internationally your trips to various places in Africa to teach so it's really amazing and now with your book so i love i love that this is the focus of your life and you know i think there's often, you know, a lot of misunderstanding about what compassion really means. And sometimes people just see it as this sort of wimpy niceness or kindness or something. And you say, be compassionate. What does, let's unpack that word a little bit. And what does compassion mean to you? And how would you Com define it? Yeah. Yeah. Compassion is a response to suffering. That's how it's different than, than kindness, right? We don't really need to to uh, acknowledge suffering when we're being kind. But when we are compassionate, we're recognizing the suffering within ourselves and within others. And a big part of that is recognizing that everyone suffers. So everyone is deserving of compassion. Yeah. And I think that's one of the challenging things, too, I find with compassion is it requires an awareness of suffering. Right. And so it takes courage. So I always think far from being some kind of wimpy quality, it actually requires a lot of courage to face up to the reality of both our own and and others suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I love so much about your book, and this is a conversation that you and I have had so much and for the listeners to know, Sarah and I got to know each other. We've been engaging in what turns out to be a three-year process that we started in January of 2020, when the world was quite a different place of uh, white-identified compassion teachers looking into the legacy of racial injustice in this country and really trying to have a 
affinity group of compassion teachers around that work. And we engaged in a study program and then have continued to meet since then. You know, so we started in January of 2020. Right after that was COVID, then George Floyd's brutal murder, then all the fires, most of us on the West Coast and all the terrible fires in the summer of 2020. So we've been through a lot as a group, even though we've been meeting on Zoom and not in person, but we got to know each other through that. And what I love so much about you and the book is you're, you know, extending this idea and the need for compassion from not just the personal, but to the systemic, right? And that's something that we've really been looking at together in our small group. Sometimes I think when people think of compassion training, they just think about it as some sort of personal self-help experience that they become nicer and kinder, but you're extending the need for compassion as a driving force in systemic change in these five key areas of corrections, education, healthcare, the workplace, and law enforcement. So we'll talk about all of these areas specifically, but I'd love to hear your ideas about why compassion itself is so key for these kinds of systemic changes. It's a great question. And what I recognize is that we are products of our systems. So you and I and other compassion teachers can do our best to prompt compassion and teach compassion to individuals. And I have found, I've been doing this now for 10 years, we're not really making the, uh, the impact that we need to be making. And what we need is for our systems to be creating compassionate individuals and for our systems to treat individuals with compassion and to care. And if we have systems that, that prioritize compassion, that's going to create compassionate individuals. So if our education system prioritizes compassion, we are going to bring children up practicing compassion for each other and for themselves. If we have compassionate correctional facilities, we will have uh, uh, much better recidivism rates. The list goes on and on, but really I'm I'm trying to think big here. Like really, we need some major changes to happen. And teaching 20 individuals at a time in an eight-week course, I just don't see that making the shift that needs to happen. And we all need to be thinking bigger about how can our systems change. And what's cool about it is that there's proof out there that compassionate systems work. So that's, that is what I write about in the book. I offer examples of look at this compassionate workplace and look at this compassionate jail. And you can see, oh, compassion isn't going to make it less effective or this soft place where everybody just does whatever they want. Uh, it's, it actually creates a more effective system. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the one of the key lessons and I love all the case studies and examples in your book too because people really realizing, I mean, we've both, you know, taught in prisons, we both brought compassion training into the prison system and both of us have found it so incredibly rewarding and I think like like you, you know, so shocked at some of the structures in the prison system that don't really support healing and transformation that really support, you know, just the the 
retributive and punitive justice, so-called justice systems in prisons. So I'd love to talk, I mean, we could talk about prison work for the rest of the whole hour. I'll I'll try not to, even though, (laughs) as the listeners of the podcast know, it's something I love to talk about. But first, just what are some of the maybe the differences or unique features of teaching compassion in settings like prisons that you've noticed. And then we'll kind of talk more about the systemic changes that need to happen. But yeah, I'm just curious your your experience teaching compassion in prison. I can say uh, in the in the maximum security prison that I taught in, the environment itself was made it very challenging to teach a compassion course because it was loud and in the room there were people coming in and out and there would be hammering and it, in the summer it was really hot it just sort of all of the you throw everything that possible into the mix and you I think what was good about it for me as a teacher and as an individual is you just learn to let this stuff go um, I think before as a as a compassion facilitator, I really want to make sure the room is quiet and everyone is comfortable and the temperature's just right and we all have snacks in, in, during a break and you know I just want everyone to to feel cared for and it it was impossible in that environment to create that for the participants, which was hard for me as a facilitator, but also to see them engage and be able to be present and ignore, you know, they're used to that, right? They're used to all the noise and the and the temperature and, and everything. So um, learning, learning how to let go of, of what I thought I needed to create an environment for teaching compassion uh, was something that was born out of that. And then, you know, it's, it's not a very compassionate place when you are going through all of these metal, heavy metal gates and barbed wire and guns. And, you know, it's just the moment I would step into the prison, I would would feel this. I mean, my body would tense up and, and I would not feel safe. Uh, so learning how to stay open and keep my heart open in a place like that. And what helped that is because the participants who were there wanted to be there. And they they were eager to learn about compassion. And, and I'm convinced that I learned I learned more from those experiences than than they did. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reflections on Buddhism on KSQD 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Tenzin Choki is a teacher of workshops and programs that bridge the worlds of Buddhist thought, contemplative practice, mental and emotional cultivation, and the latest research in the field of positive psychology. She is also a certified teacher of compassion cultivation training and the Cultivating Emotional Balance Program. Tenzin is especially interested in bringing the wisdom of Buddhism into modern culture and into alignment with modern cultural values, such as racial and gender justice and environmental awareness. She feels strongly that a genuine and meaningful spiritual path includes not only personal transformation, but social and cultural transformation as well. 
She loves interfaith collaboration and is a volunteer for the Interfaith Speakers Bureau of the Islamic Networks Group. You can find Tenzin's upcoming teaching schedule, podcast, and a number of useful resources on her website, unlockingtruehappiness.org. Again, that's unlockingtruehappiness.org. And you know, one thing I found too is really challenging to get to an opening. And then of course they walk out of the room and they're back in that violent environment. So I noticed, you know, my teaching in in prison with the group, like you'd establish this trust and then the vulnerability would come out. And I'd always feel like, am I taking them to this place that's unsafe the minute they walk out of the room, but seeing how they manage, like they knew how to do that. I would worry about that, but they knew how to do that. But it always sort of broke my heart to be reaching a place in the room that wasn't sustainable five minutes later after they walked out. I mean, they could access it and they had so many stories, but, you know, a through line I noticed in the book is the struggle between like these for profit motivations for so many of these systems and how it seems so incompatible with compassion like obviously the for profit prisons and the privatization of prisons incentivizes long sentences no paroles incentivizes recidivism so then there's people who come in and try and do rehabilitation but that's not what the for profit prison And it's really hard not to feel so discouraged by that, which, you know, you talk about in your book, it's sort of working at cross purposes and how, you know, this capitalist for-profit structures for so many of these systems, which is why in the U.S. it's so different from these other countries where things are not privatized and then, of course, emptying the prison saves the government money if they're all like in New Zealand. I taught in prisons in the New Zealand in New Zealand, and they were talking about privatizing, but everybody was so horrified by that idea and the outcomes that would happen from privatizing that they were like, "No way are we going to let this happen so so that's that's really hard, and that can be discouraging. just that capitalist agenda of for profit systems, you know so. Yeah, yeah, just sitting. Yeah, yeah. And I, one of our fellow CCT teachers, Bob Johnson, I, I interviewed him for the book. As the in the law enforcement, I included him in the law enforcement chapter, but also in in the corrections chapter because he just was elected as sheriff of Santa Clara County, and he talked about how he wanted to create the sheriffs of of counties are in charge of the jails. And he said he wanted to create jails where uh, it's healing centered. Yeah. Creating an environment where incarcerated individuals can sleep well. Right. Taken care of. And they're given this space where they, they can heal. And that's not what our correctional facilities look like right now. We're not, I mean, it's the opposite of that. We're harming. Yeah. And, you know, again, there's no incentive for healing, it seems, but I'm really encouraged to see people like Bob. um, People in the system, yeah. Yeah, because he really can create some some needed changes. And you're, you know, the law enforcement section of the book, and of course, 
We're recording this kind of the week after the video of Tyree Nichols was released. Yesterday was his funeral. So once again, the, you know, police violence and brutality and police shootings are so at the forefront. And so that there are these people like Bob, who is actually in my teaching teacher training cohort too. So I know him a little bit who are trying to bring compassion into law enforcement and policing because it's the same kind of kind of structures, these over-militarized structures and this kind of culture of just so much fear and threat, which makes people do these horrific things. You know, they're kind of trained to see everybody as a threat and not trained to be compassionate and just the need for you know, more training and responding to mental health crises and things like that in a compassionate way, which, you know, hopefully that culture will change. And it might take things like these massive protests for that to, to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And considering that our law enforcement officers also need compassion. Yeah, that's right. They, they aren't in environments that promote healing either. Yeah. you know, who do we call on our very worst day? Right. Them. What do they see day after day after day? And they aren't typically given the support they need to heal from that. Yeah. So yeah. we're not we're not creating an environment for our police officers to be compassionate. It's the same thing, right? We need to create environments where compassion can emerge. And we're not doing that in our systems. Because the health outcomes for them that you specify in your chapter, I mean, these incredibly, as we've all heard about the high high rates of suicide among law enforcement, and then the health, like you said, some statistic that they tend to live something like 20 years less than people outside of their profession and the stress and the high blood pressure and the lack of sleep and all of that. So, and not really getting support for any any of that at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're right. Those kind of, you know, supporting them compassionately. So they're not so stressed in those moments where they have to respond almost immediately to some situation, because if they're coming out of a sense of stress and threat, of course, they're going to react violently in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I know that I, I'm not as patient of a mother when I haven't slept well, yeah. or when I'm off my routine, or, or whatever the case may be, right? So um, I do have compassion for our police officers, because they, they're not trained to be compassionate, and they aren't given, um, they aren't in environments that allow for compassion. Yeah, in the, in the Cultivating Emotional Balance course that I teach, we have a, a, a piece of that training called the emotional episode timeline. And we talk about the precondition for an emotional episode and lack of sleep and hunger or two, it's sort of like an AA halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. So if you're just having people have that precondition kind of 24 seven, it's hard to not expect some terrible outcomes from their interaction with someone in crisis. Like you say, the person you call on your worst day is the person who's already has a precondition for some kind of emotional episode. It will not go well for anyone in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. One of your chapters 
is all about education. And, you know, you're, you have a daughter still in high school, so you have firsthand experience of the educational system, and you've really seen the impact of school systems that don't prioritize this kind of, you know, what's sometimes called social, social emotional learning or any kind of compassion training. And, you know, as we've all become more aware of, I think with COVID, these statistics of child and adolescent mental health that has just gotten so much worse over the pandemic. And, you know, you talk in your book, you share some stories about introducing mindfulness, emotional regulation skills. You have this wonderful story of this place that has what they call the mindful moment room, where you go if you're feeling dysregulated to have a moment of mindfulness or art or something like that. So, I would love you to talk more about, you know, what your vision is for transforming the educational system in more compassionate ways also. There's so much opportunity there for help, I think. And I did talk to some experts in education in this chapter, and uh, they are out of the University of Virginia, and they, they developed a program called the Compassionate Schools Project. And so they've been doing this huge study um, in Louisville, Kentucky, with tens of thousands of students, I think it was a seven-year-long study, if I'm not mistaken, and seven or nine, now I can't remember, uh, but they're they're trying to incorporate compassion into schools and, um, and mindfulness and nutrition and movement and these things that create, you know, a, a, I guess it's... Um, wellness for the whole being, right? Not just mental wellness, but physical wellness as well. And I, I had asked them because they're, you know, they're trying this in schools and they can get like the art teacher and maybe the, the librarian and the PE teachers are the ones that are, are taught this, but it's not really embedded into the schools like they would want to. And, and I said, gosh, is there a school or a school system that really does this well that we can point to and and they said they didn't know of one well so discouraging it's so discouraging and the, and they pointed out that it's because our educational system the way that it was built was based off of the industrial revolution and we're just we've got these kids on a factory and we silo them and based on your age this is what you're learning and you know, none of it is looking at individual learning styles or uh, where they are as far as, as learning is concerned. And so it's just not a, com the whole thing isn't compassionate from the beginning. So it was it, such <laughs> an interesting, I'd never known that we use a conveyor belt model. When I read that in your book, I thought, oh my gosh, it's total conveyor belt education. And I had never even thought of that at all. That was, yeah, that was shocking. Well, and if you think about it, there used to be bells and, you know, loud bells or whistles between classes, just like a factory. And you get up and you move and you want to have them in a straight line go, going from one classroom to the next. I mean, that's, that's how our schools were developed. And so there's a lot of unlearning that needs to be done to to revamp the entire education system, which that's deserves its own series of books. I think I say that for every chapter, like I know this is one small chapter and this deserves its own 
series of books on this, uh, but particularly education, because if we can start children at a young age learning these skills of mindfulness and compassion, these are our future leaders and, and these Absolutely. are the people that, that can create change. But that, that mindful moment room, I mean, that was in New York and a teacher that I spoke with, that was actually even at a high school. And so if a child or a, a young person is feeling like, boy, I could really cause some harm right now. I can feel something inside of me. I need to, I need to do something about that. They have the self-awareness to ask the teacher, can I be excused? And they go into this room that the lighting is nice. There are plants. They can draw or color or do some yoga or just sip hot tea. There's somebody there, someone there to speak with if they want to talk, talk to somebody. It's just this place of healing. So instead of punishing kids for acting out, they're saying, okay, before that happens, here's where you can go so that you can get yourself back to who you are and then come back into the classroom when you're ready. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reflections on Buddhism with Tenzin Choki on KSQD 90.7 FM. You can find out more about Tenzin's upcoming classes and subscribe to her podcast at unlockingtruehappiness.org. You know, and to me, the education, I always have, you know, tie it into the school to prison pipeline, because whenever I would teach incarcerated men, maximum security, I remember one group was in a maximum security prison. It was a year-long anger management, violence prevention for people who were in for violent crimes. <clears throat> and these were people, most, most of those individuals had done hard time, like 30, many of them, 30, 35 years of incarceration. And most of their offenses were done. Most of them were gang-related violence when they were teens. You know, and I would think so much, and they were doing such hard work in their 40s and 50s to unlearn this lifetime of habits. And, you know, and I would always think, oh my gosh, if we had gotten to them when they were teens, their whole lives would have been different and the lives of whoever they had shot because it was jumping into a gang. I mean, for so many of them, we used to do these tallies of like, how many lives had been lost due to the group, like a, a group tally of how many years of incarceration, how many lives were lost due to their crime, you know, all of these things. And so thinking of like, you know, having some of these strategies early on and widely available, how much suffering and loss of life would be saved. So it's not even just about acting out and being, you know, having emotional regulation tools. It's like literally a life or death situation. Yeah. Well, and that also starts with looking at the kids who need support when they come to school. It's impossible to learn or be on your best behavior if you haven't eaten. Yeah, yeah. Or if you didn't sleep either, right? I mean, it's the same thing. We, we can't expect people to behave skillfully when they're hungry yeah. or they're tired or they're angry or lonely. And so are, are our educators and administrators asking those types of questions? 
Have you eaten? What's going on at home? These are the types of questions instead of you're suspended or here's a detention for you. You're a bad kid. Right. We know hurt people hurt people. So if we can make sure kids are getting healthy food, that's another thing. I think schools are, I know in California, they're doing a, a better job now of making sure kids have meals, but are they, I don't know if they're healthy. I haven't looked into that, but that's another thing about our correctional facilities too. The food is terrible. So terrible. I I read one study once where they had actually, a group had gone in to do a study on violence rates. Uh, Like, would it be reduced if the food was actually healthy? Because there's hardly ever a fresh fruit or vegetable or anything. So they had these wonderful meals for like a year and it was just striking the violence rates plummeted just by changing the lunch, like just by changing the food to something that most of us who are halfway health conscious would be eating on a daily basis instead of white bread and hot dogs. I've had students in prison who've tried to become vegetarian and it's nearly impossible with the food that they have in there. And there's just not even an option of any kind of fresh food. And when this group, I can't remember who it was that did this study, and then they presented it to all these correctional, you know, showing even the money that would be saved by having healthy food, then you wouldn't have to have so many people in solitary confinement and blah, 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 and all the things. And still, it hasn't really gone much of anywhere. So yeah, those those kind of things, hopefully, you know, will become more prevalent and will somehow insist on that. You know, that's one of the things you talk about in your book is is these lobbies, you know, lobbying lawmakers to be tough on crime and just all of the money that goes into the private prisons and their lobbying efforts. I had a friend, friend from Brazil and he came to visit and somehow lobbying came up and he didn't understand that English word. So I was explaining what it was and he said, wait, you're talking about bribery. <laughs> I was like, uh, basically, yeah, because he was like lobbying. I don't know that word in English. What's that? You know? so oh, like, it's so yeah, true. <laughs> it's totally basically bribery. So Which, true. You know, and, and you also, speaking of lobbying, you have a whole chapter about healthcare and the motivation also there, as well as corrections, is for profit and not really to care for the patients and with patient visits limited to 15 minutes. And I spent years living in both New Zealand and Canada, both countries with national healthcare systems, and the differences are couldn't be more striking and in terms of how much I had to, I mean, I didn't have to pay anything once I got on a work visa. I didn't have to pay a cent for anything ever in either New wow. Zealand or Canada, not even co-pays, nothing at all. Not even like when you're on Obamacare, Medicare, anything like that, the way it is here. And you talk in your book about, you know, this moral in- injury and the toll that it takes on healthcare providers and all the statistics of burnout in healthcare providers. So yeah, the relationship between moral injury and how it relates to these high levels of burnout and how you see compassion really entering the picture for healthcare professionals mm-hmm. also. 
And again, that's a systems-wide problem. I teach uh, med students at UCSD every summer. I have a handful of students that are in a certain compassion-focused program. And again, I'm teaching these individuals about compassion. That's the point of the class. But we also have to point out, and do you have the time to be compassionate toward yourself and toward your patients within the system that you're in? And, you know, what can we do about that? Because these physicians are constrained, right? They're given 15 minutes per patient. They have a certain quota that they have to meet. And that's because the, um, you know, the system is looking to make a certain amount of money to pay their bills. Um, but these doctors aren't able to give the care they want to give. And that's hard. Imagine this is, this is the job. This is your career. You went through all this training. This is your life. And you can't do your job in the way that you want to because the administrators don't allow you to. And, you know, there are so many people whose hands are tied. It's hard to even point to, well, it's, you know, it's their fault. It's the administrator's fault. It is hard not to look at CEO salaries of, of hospital systems yes. and say, well, geez. Yeah. So do you need to make $10 million or can you maybe reduce it to one and let these doctors have a little more time with their patients or give them a break so that they can, they can take some space for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, I write about a friend of mine who is a, is a physician and he had just taken over a, a nursing home right before COVID hit in, uh, in Washington, where it was like the epicenter and his staff left. And I mean, it was a terrible, 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 unbearable situation. When I spoke to him, maybe a month or two into COVID, I didn't even recognize his voice. I could barely hear him. And he was exhausted working seven days a week, all day, every day, because he didn't have the help he needed. And um, again, it's, he was, he didn't want to point a finger at his administration because they also, everybody's hands were tied here. But when I think I must have said something about self-compassion and he's like, oh, that's not going to help. Like that's, I'm way beyond compassion right now. I can't, you know, it's, I'm just going on fumes here. Wow. There's no, there's no time for compassion for myself. Wow. wow. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And I, I believe physicians and other like nurses, people are leaving the industry because it's too hard. I think the rate of nurse, I read some statistic and I can't remember the percentage, but super high for the number of nurses who trained and left within like two or three years of actually being qualified in nursing or getting their degrees in nursing like vast majority, more than 50% left nursing within a couple of years of going through all the training for it. Because that moral injury, I I met a physician last week who had quit, quit, uh, you know, healthcare to become a podcaster to talk about wellness and healing and transformation. For exactly, wow. you mentioned that 15 minute 
requirement and she said she just couldn't in good conscience like the moral injury of she's like no i'm missing what's really happening with this patient i'm not even able to give them adequate care or even diagnose in a 15 minute conversation with any kind of clarity all the complications that might be going on with them i can barely even read their chart yeah all all of those things. And then there are people who, like your friend, either you feel like you have to just dissociate and shut down in order to stay in it, or you leave. And what, and that's a terrible, you know, dichotomy to be in, to either disengage or quit. So I think, you know, for longevity of our healthcare systems and our healthcare professionals, and one of the silver linings of COVID, I think that's becoming more and more apparent. So hopefully some sort of change will happen as a result of that. Yeah. But again, are we looking at who's making money here? Yeah, that's right. That's who's right. making money. Is it the drug companies? Uh, is it these, I think they're called pharmacy benefit management companies. I mean, there are all these different layers of people making money in this industry. It's very complicated. Yeah. Uh, the way that it all works. But I know I write in the book about my experience. I was a pharmaceutical sales rep for many, many years. And oh, there was a lot of money flying around in that job. Will you tell a story of being in a booth with like dollar bills flying around in like this air booth and you had to grab as many as you could? I mean, that's just crazy. Isn't that insane? <laughs> That's insane at like the at the convention of pharmaceuticals. It's like the national sale. It was like oh our company's gosh. sales meeting. So I was on a stage. I had I was a very successful rep, and so I had won something and was on stage. And the top three reps got to go in this phone booth, this glass like phone booth thing, and where they blew money around. And you just had you had thirty seconds or something to oh grab as much God. cash as you could. <laughs> and meanwhile, we're selling eye drops to. Uh, ophthalmologist who would prescribe them and guess who their patients are it's the it's elderly patients on a fixed income wow wow and in fact my first boss who was my boss for a long time in the industry who who also left pharmaceuticals because uh, she couldn't take it anymore she and I were together last week and she said she she'll never forget a conversation we had and I won't either but we were launching a a glaucoma medication, an eye drop. And during a field, she was with me one day and we were at lunch and I said, you know, I just don't feel good about this. This, It's pretty much just the same as the generic. Wow. And I am having a hard time. Mm. And she said, well, this is your job and this is what we're paying you to do. (sighs) And it's true. It is true. That was my job. My job was to sell this. It wasn't to feel sorry for the patients who were going to have to pay for it. So if I wanted to keep that very high paying job, that's what I had to do. Right. They would find somebody else. I mean, that's, and that's why I had to leave the industry because of that. You have to sell the products that aren't even good. Right. Right. And sometimes this setup is like that, like pushing back to create more time per patient or less profit per medication. I mean, if you raise your voice like that, you're just out. 
because the whole system is set up in such a dysfunction. Like you can't even work from within for change because the structure doesn't even doesn't even support that at all. Mm-mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then these workplaces, you know, you you gave one example and you said you couldn't even believe when you read that there was a workplace that required 85 hours of meetings a week. And then you had to do all your other work. And I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I know. I was trying to do the math in my head. Like, what? Yeah, like, How is that even possible? Times 24 <laughs> maximum of hours in a day. And, you know, and then there is this phenomenon, it seems like driven a little more by millennials and Gen Z, like, and post-COVID, and there's a word I've read in New York Times articles of like quiet quitting and people who are just saying no to those cultures of just crazy amounts of hours and just crazy amount, like the bar is so high, it's not at all like the 40 hour work week turned into 80 plus overtime. And when did that happen? And that's just completely crazy. And even the, you know, I know like our, our teacher, Leah Weiss, who's one of our compassion instructors, and I've heard her talk about how she's called into these places like Google, Facebook, whatever, to teach compassion and mindfulness. And she goes, I won't go into a company who's just wanting to do mindfulness as a way to support an unsustainable lifestyle. Like you get a 10 minute mindfulness break every five hours, and then you can work 20 hours a day. She said, you know, there are places that are bringing these strategies in just to support the completely unsustainable structures. And she goes, you know, I just refuse to do any consulting with organizations like that. So do you see, I don't know, do you see hope for change with the millennials and Gen Zs? And I think those generations are also wanting to live more uh, in accordance with their values. Maybe it's still youthful Mm -hmm. idealism. I'm a baby boomer. I never lost my youthful idealism my whole life. I've hung on, clung on to it, <laughs> you know, but yeah, what kind of changes do you see or what, what do you see out there in terms of that kind of change? Well, I'm hopeful because of these generations and my daughter is a Gen Z, Gen Zer. I don't know, however you say it, what she is, she's a part of Gen Z and I, I see that they care, they care about our planet, they care about each other. Uh, and they seem to do a better job setting boundaries mm. than our gener- than our generations have done. And they really know what matters to them and they care about them. They're not going to work at these places that don't align with their values. And they, they do have the courage to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Whereas I don't, I didn't have that courage for a long time. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't really raised to have that courage. You know, you're taught to get a job and, stick with it and do what the boss tells you to do, right? And if, if you don't, if you say, gosh, I don't feel good about selling this product, well, guess what? You're not gonna have that job anymore. But these generations, they don't care. It seems, you know, I mean, they care so much that they don't care about that type of consequence. Um, and that's what we need. We need people who, who are going to fight back because that those systems are gonna have to change in order to accommodate this, these generations. That's my hope. I, I, that's my hope. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reflections on Buddhism with Tenzin Choki, 
on KSQD 90.7 FM. And in the last section of your book, you talk about compassionate leadership. You go into some of the qualities of a compassionate leader. And you also interview um, Roshi Joan Halifax that the listeners will be very familiar because I bring her work in all the time and her book, Standing at the Edge, you know, it's just been so amazing in the way she talks about the pitfalls of compassion. But yeah, what are some of the qualities of compassionate leadership and what can any of us in a position of leadership bring in to to really change some of these structures? I came up with four uh, four qualities that I think leaders need in order to be more compassionate in the workplace. And one of them is to model vulnerability, right? So just like when I'm working with parents or educators, the best way to teach anyone is to model it, right? So if you're wanting to create a culture where people feel connected and uh, can have compassion for each other, you too have to show your own vulnerabilities and um, and show that it's okay to be vulnerable in the workplace. So I think that that is a really an important piece, being able to say, gosh, I don't know, mm-hmm. right? having hu- humility or saying, you know what, Saturdays are for family. I can't do it this weekend. Um, and then another quality is, is being a good listener. And that's a skill we teach in CCT and in all the workshops that I lead as well. And people don't realize what kind of listening, what kind of listener they are often until you sort of force them to uh, what, what what we do in CCT and I do in my workshops is have people listen with, and you can't say a word back as a listener and folks realize, oh my gosh, I usually interrupt or I bring it back to myself or whatever it is, I'm not usually letting the person share. So as a leader, are you being a good listener? Um, Also as a leader, you need to create and offer opportunities for your people to connect to each other, which is getting harder to do as we're working remotely or in hybrid environments, but finding ways to get people to know each other as human beings and not just workers. So I wrote about um, another (laughs) compassion teacher, a friend of ours, Gloria, who starts her meetings now with, you know, how are you? And she's very on it. You know, she has her agendas for her meetings, but she's learned, you know, I'm a much better colleague when we have these personal connections with each other and can support each other. Um, So as a leader, do you create time and space for people to connect? And then also look at your systems. Like Leah was saying, Sure, you can teach your individuals compassion and mindfulness, but if the system is making them work all day, every day, and not offering paid time off or paternity and maternity leave or you know whatever it is, then you're not a compassionate workplace. So what does your onboarding system look like? What are your leave protocols? Um, is there flex time? What, do employees know what to do if they're struggling? And is that okay? Is there any stigma around asking for mental health support? So really looking at, at your systems and making sure all along the way you, you care mm, mm. for the people who work for you. I mean, really that's the underlying um, word or um, 
notion, right? We we want to create these cultures where where people care and can care for each other. Yeah. You know, when when you talk about the disconnection in the workplace, it was it reminds me of my friend Dr. Eve Ekman, who's the the um executive director of the uh, uh of the Cultivating Emotional Balance program. And she did her PhD research on burnout in healthcare professionals. And she found like the single factor preventing burnout was feeling that you had supportive coworkers. Like that was absolutely one of the hugest factors that really prevented burnout. And I'm thinking of this concept that comes up in social justice communities of community care, not just self-care you know, but also community care, like how are we showing up for each other? How, you know, you mentioned in your book and my, my dad was from a small town and just this phenomenon of somebody dies and everybody brings casseroles and everybody crowds around and takes care. And if we just took care of each other more when we're having a hard time and just show that kind of just basic human care that used to be part of and still is part of cultures, but we've a little bit lost in our disconnected kind of modern high paced, you know, capitalist culture for sure. So bringing that in and finding opportunities to do that and support each other. So important. Yeah. Well, and again, a big part of that is, is also being able to share. I need support. Yeah. 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 I'm struggling. This is what I'm going through. Yeah. We live in this culture where we think we have to, show everyone that we're doing great. Look at my Instagram. I'm living this awesome life, right? Or or maybe we're not, we're struggling, but we look on Instagram and everybody else is doing well. So yeah. I, there's something wrong with me. So we aren't even giving people the opportunity to care for us because we're not showing yes. our vulnerabilities. We're not showing that we're struggling and asking for help. So we do need to do, have a shift in our culture where we feel okay asking people for support mm. and telling them that we're struggling. And that's not a weakness. That's being a human being. Right. That's right. That's right. And that's one of the bravest things. I just had a conversation actually this morning with a friend when we were talking about how trust and respect enables us to be vulnerable. Like if we feel that we have a basis of trust and respect with someone else, we're feeling safe to share our vulnerability. So being, you know, showing that to people so that they will be able to open up and that we can all just be a little more real and not so Instagram with each other would be a big important shift. Yeah. So now that your book is out, what's next for you in terms of projects and ideas? And yeah, I'd love to hear more. And also so people can find you in your work. Yes. Well, they can find me at CompassionIt.com. I'm sure there will be a link somewhere on a website. But anyway, we'll CompassionIt. And we'll have okay. on the website too with that link. Yeah. Great. Great. And so, yeah, I'm just trying to do my best to share this message with as many, many people as I can. So going into organizations and trying to support individual transformation, but also the systemic change that's needed. So that's really the direction that my teammate Burrell and I are going is how do we get into organizations and help them create these compassionate workplaces that, um, you know, create compassionate individuals. So instead of 
just this individual compassion training. Let's look at the systems level and let us support you with that. Yeah, fantastic. So are you going back? I know you've been doing a lot of things online. And of course, Burrell is based in Chicago and you're based in San Diego. So you mm-hmm. kind of end up doing a lot of things online, but I imagine a little bit more in person now. And- yeah. Yeah. Yep. I'm, I am doing a bit of traveling now to do some teaching and have been doing more in-person workshops, which is wonderful. But we can also do a lot of, I've been very surprised at what we can do through Zoom. So Burrell and I are now quite skilled at Zoom and feel very good about the workshops that we lead virtually too. Yeah. And, and we're all about making compassion accessible. That's our thing. This book is supposed to be accessible. The way that we teach is accessible. And we know that Zoom allows for that accessibility as well. Yeah, well, everybody really hope the listeners check out A Case for Compassion and Compassion It and Sarah. And it's just been such a pleasure. I can't believe so many more questions that I wanted to ask you. But <laughs> here we are, our, our time <laughs> over. But it's been such a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Tintin. Thank you for joining us. You can find past episodes of Reflections on Buddhism on the ksqd.org website. And you can learn more about Tenzin's upcoming classes and subscribe to her podcast and newsletter on her website, which is unlockingtruehappiness.org. Again, that's unlockingtruehappiness.org.